0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we welcome David Blanchett, who is the Managing Director and Head of Retirement Research for PGMDC Solutions, which is the global investment management business. Of Prudential Financial. Stick around. That's coming up next.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. And this week, we've got a special guest on the show. This week, we welcome David Blanchett. He is a PhD, a CFA, a CFP. He's the Managing Director and the Head of Retirement Research at PGM DC Solutions, which is the prudential investing arm. A really incredible academic background and uh, professional one. I won't go through all of it just so that we have some time to actually talk with him. But David, welcome to the show. Great
2: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, we're going to start with an easy one. Where's the market going to end the year? No, I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs> it is, it's gonna end somewhere. It could be. It could actually end up where it is right now. So I have I have absolutely no idea.
0: No, no, t- totally kidding. So uh, as a researcher and and uh, really all the work that you do around. Retirement planning—I find it really fascinating. And uh, one of the things that you've written about is kind of the underspending in retirement portfolios, and we've observed that with our clients. I think on the other side of that, you've got groups like Morningstar saying the four percent withdrawal rate is too aggressive; it should be three point three. What's your observation in that space? Like, is there a right number? Can can you talk about just what you've looked at in that world, and, and can we start there?
2: Yeah. So this is like you could spend hours on this topic alone, right? So I was actually, you know, I'm going to protect the innocent here. I was I was emailing a colleague the other day, you know, and and it was reviewing a paper and the paper looking at taxes. And the person just throws up their hands and says, I cannot give any kind of guidance around taxes. It's just too complicated and i'm i'm like well that's not helpful at all like you just can't tell someone that there is no answer there's no starting place right and so like the 4% rule it's really kind of misnamed right so you can take out 4% in the first year the amount increases by inflation sure it's not 8% or like 12% some people say it's like 8% it's not Okay, so it's a very imperfect strategy, right? I think that in reality, it's your age, it's your gender, it's your health, it's your needs, it's all this stuff goes into it. But the, the fact that you need 25-ish or 20-ish times your goal isn't a crazy bogey for most Americans. If You ask most people who haven't heard of anything, that's a decent place to start. Right now, when it comes to things like retirement spending, it's even like messier, right? Because if you if you read the news, you hear about this like retirement crisis and gloom and doom and all this stuff. And what do you mean people aren't spending enough money? They don't have any money to begin with. And so, like like long story short, retirement is is incredibly complicated, and the, the biggest uncertainty is how long you're going to live, right? And most people that are 78 years old don't want to go back and work at Walmart. And so it, it becomes this problem where they don't they don't feel comfortable depleting their portfolio, and so even if they haven't saved enough, even if they're making sacrifices, they're underspending because they fear because because it, it uh, they just don't know how long they're going to
1: live. Kind of ahead, related Dan. to that, I know you've done some research about I guess the irrational preference for income over spending on principle. Do you think that's also Attributable to why people are underspending because they're just looking at what's kicking out in an income and saying, "All right, that's what I can allocate towards spending without being detrimental to my portfolio."
2: Yeah, I like to use the word behavioral versus irrational. You know, the word rational has like negative connotations. But um, you know, if you look at if you look at so the, the funny thing is is you look at things like like the four percent rule, been around for thirty plus years. Okay, it assumes an individual depletes their portfolio effectively towards zero over a 30-year retirement time horizon, okay? Most people don't want to do that, right? Most people want to to not touch their capital or or touch the main portfolio and live mostly or entirely off income. And so I think what that that changes then is preferences, right? So um, no weird math today, um, but like the optimal portfolio that you design to maximize total return, total return is income return plus plus price return. So think of it as like dividends plus capital appreciation on a stock. Is is actually kind of different than the one that you would design, where someone lives off of the income. And you know, I think what's really important is to understand how an investor or retiree is going to utilize their capital, and then build an efficient portfolio based upon that. Um, I'm doing research right now based upon regret, like you know, or you can like FOMOs, the fun word to use, fear of missing out. Like, how do you how do you design portfolios that are as efficient as they can be? given the unique preferences of like every single person.
0: Well, and I, I think that preference thing, that, that's a really key point because you can design a portfolio for different end goals. If you're if you're seeking cash flow security, you're gonna start from a different spot than if you're seeking legacy. Uh, and, and the the largest amount that you're going to leave to that next generation or to charities, and so you know, depending on what the investors prioritizing, and I I think that's tough to get people to really focus around because it's a little bit abstract and it's a little bit challenging. But you're going to build those things differently. Where somebody that's going to prioritize that cash flow security is is going to be maybe much happier in in guaranteed income solutions and and things of that nature versus somebody that's trying to totally maximize what they leave and they're willing to make that sacrifice and live on less like a dividend focused investor that's only going to live on on that sort of yield.
2: Yeah, it's like one one comment that I, I I make more and more is that retirement is not a single goal, it's a series of goals. Right? Even like the income goal that you want to spend. It's like a combination of, you know, you can do like needs, wants and wishes or like essential, non-essential, all these fun ways to parse it up. But you know, you've got the money that if you don't have you're going to get like really angry really fast. Okay, then you have money that like you kind of want to spend because you enjoy it, but if you can't spend it, you're not that crazy angry. You've got more money you'd love to do stuff on, but if you can't, it's no big deal. And understanding like how your assets are funding those different portions is really important, and I, I, you know, I personally think that you know the amount that you need to have every year it should be protected or guaranteed for life. You don't want any uncertainty around you know going broke. And I think that the best way to do that, hands down, is delaying claiming Social Security. Um, if you want more protection, there's other ways you can go. I think it's just important to understand you know like what are your goals, what are your assets, and how do they mesh together.
0: I think that the um... The delaying Social Security creates such a unique window for a lot of people that I don't think they envision. There's, uh, and and as somebody that uh, has target date funds in in your firm's uh, portfolios, uh, you know one of the things that I've observed is that there's almost whether you call it the bond tent or a carve out strategy, whatever it is, but there's this kind of gap period uh, for people that retire before Social Security is going to turn on. Uh, and in in my view, that. That gap period is kind of what should drive the allocation. It's really withdrawal rate sensitivity to to the allocation. Where I see a lot of people that can actually take more risk post seventy than they could at age sixty. And and uh, I'm just curious if you've got any views there on kind of our target date funds. Um, should they be adjusting back up in their equity allocations, or is that a crazy idea?
2: So I have a you know I have a love hate relationship with target date funds. So so target date funds are like so much better. Than every single American building their own portfolio. That was just an absolute hot mess of an idea. That every American is somehow a portfolio manager. We're going to give them a a menu of thirty funds and just and they're going to build these hyper efficient mean varying portfolios. That was ridiculous. Okay. At the same time, right? Everybody is different, and so I think that what we have is this kind of like stopgap where you know I always say in a perfect world every American would get like an hour or two every year with a. A, a certified financial planner to get a personalized portfolio strategy, that's not going to happen. That, that's just not realistic from pricing. And so I think where we are is a place where targeted funds are a pretty good first approximation, but it doesn't necessarily do the job the closer you get to retirement. And to your point, if you're delaying claiming Social Security, you're going to have some really interesting cash flow needs, possibly. You know, if you're going from 62 to 70, it could change your portfolio, your allocation, lots of things. So um, I'm not opposed to the risk actually increasing post-Lane Social Security. And and the reason right actually is to my earlier comment about, well, if you have all of your needs covered from Social Security at that point in time, you can take more risk with your once allocations because that's a fair trade-off. I mean, I don't I don't know many investors who have all of their money in fixed income. Right. Usually you have some in fixed income, some in stocks. That is just a trade. You're just saying, hey, I'm willing to take on some risk in my portfolio for the probability of a higher return. It, it could it could backfire completely, but there's a balance there. And once you've maximized social security, you have all of your needs covered. Then it's this question to your earlier point: well, how much do I value bequests? If I don't have any value for a bequest like whatsoever, I, I just don't care. Maybe I actually go even more conservative because I can lock in income for life. I think it really is a very personalized decision, especially after you meet those needs.
1: There's a very funny middle ground there where you have enough to either secure your own financial future or leave a bequest where you can almost go to the extremes, right? Because once it doesn't matter, you can say, all right, let me guarantee this baseline for myself, plus whatever I may need to spend, or I'm going to be okay. Let me just go for broke and have fun with it and it won't impact my life. And that's always a very tricky conversation to have with people because then you really need to dig deep into yourself and see where your values fall and which end of the spectrum you feel is best for you. I doesn't eliminate the middle ground too, but it's just an open playground of possibility.
2: Well, I, you know I think most most people are, are somewhere in that that murky middle, right? I mean if you know if, if you have lots of extra monies, you, you find ways to spend it. If you don't have a lot of money, you, you, you find a way to cut back and be okay. I think that human beings are kind of naturally predisposed to kind of kind of you know meeting in the middle somewhere and so i think that you know like like these issues never actually go away right and when you overlay you know tax changes and Longevity. I, you know, I, I get it. When if you're if you're 30 years old, you might not need a financial advisor. You know, buy some life insurance, save for a down payment, put some money away in your 401k. But as you as you get as you get closer to retirement, there's a lot of really important decisions you've got to make. And if you make one of those decisions wrong, it could be almost cataclysmic. So I always say, you know what? You know, I think at every point in life, advisors can add value, but especially around and in retirement, there's so much can go wrong. You want to make sure you've got someone that's making sure that is a giving you good advice.
0: So uh, we talked just before we started recording a little bit about estimates for equity return rate. I know you're doing some work that's getting ready to come out there. Um, One of the areas that I'm consistently finding myself a little uncomfortable is with some younger investors. When you look at some of the inflation rates that we're applying, for example, to healthcare costs, right? So some of the software default packages are assuming 6% inflation annually for like the next 70 years, for, for you know a thirty year old investor, and it looks like they're going to spend two three hundred thousand dollars a year on healthcare costs by the time they hit retirement. That looks a little silly to me. I, like I feel like something's going to have to give in that. But um, you know, do you have any advice for us as planners on how to think about what what we should be inflating these costs at, and and how does that relate to your equity risk work that you've been doing?
2: Yeah. So like if, if, if you assume healthcare goes up six percent a year, like that's like the entire economy right? in, in 50 years, like it's just one giant health system, like that's all everybody does. I mean, um, it, it might be true. Who knows? I know. So, I mean, so, I, you know, I, I, I'm i like a financial planning methodologist. So I'd like describe, you know, we're, we're in a friendly environment here. And so I think that the first thing you have to acknowledge is like it's going to be wrong. Right. Like it's impossible to like know. Where life is going to be in thirty or forty or fifty or sixty years, okay? But I think yeah, you, you have to try to, to do to do a good job. I mean, the goal of the plan is to form expectations. Like this is how much you should be saving. This is what you're going to spend, stuff like that. And you know, obviously, when you're when you're young, when you're in your 30s or even your 40s, retirement is like a mirage. It's like 20 plus years away, and so much will change between now and then. You're going to have, you're going to get your raises. You're going to want to spend money on things. Your kids go to college. All these things happen. As you move closer to retirement, it kind of you know like the the, the mirage. it it comes more into form, you know, like your odds are you retire early because you have you get downsized, you have a health issue, all these things happen. I think what's what's super important, though, is to use reasonable assumptions all throughout. I don't think a six percent healthcare assumption is reasonable, right? I think that I think that you have. Here's the thing: what you have is a retirement goal. Okay, so it is true. So the average U.S. household that is sixty-five spends ten percent of their total expenditures on healthcare. That goes to twenty percent by age eighty-five. Okay, so it does rise. Okay, here's the thing though: you spend a lot less than everything else. Okay, when you have a health shock. Guess what? On average, your other spending goes down. So I wouldn't go crazy with like with like you know a six percent healthcare. I think you need reasonable assumptions that reflect reality. But I wouldn't I wouldn't you know go that far. I think that you know. And so one one other kind of important thing is that you know. So I, we are in a, a lower interest rate environment today. So the long term average yield on government bonds has been about five percent. It's like three percent today. Okay, so if you're retiring like right now, like today. You cannot go out and buy a government bond yielding 5%. That's simply just, it's just a fact. Okay. So what's really important is, you know, I think when you do financial plans and projections is that your near term assumptions reflect the current economic reality. And then at some point in time in the future, you move towards like um, whatever you think is like the the future long-term average. I really get concerned when I see advisors running financial plans that either assume that, you know rates are low forever, unless they think that's what's going to happen, or, or based purely upon US historical averages.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to it just personally, and you can tell me if you agree with this, you know, that real return rate is is what's so important, right? So I mean, even if we're going to assume that inflation remains very high or very low, that corridor is is what's important. Um, and for anybody that I just lost, what I really mean is how much are we growing your purchasing power in excess of how much your costs are going up? And, and in a world where stocks are making 15% but your costs go up at 10% a year your real returns like 5 um uh, you know so so that that's the corridor that I think is is particularly important is are we keeping those relationships at least somewhat intact what does your research on the equity risk premium kind of lead to in in terms of how we think about that
2: Yeah. So to your point, I think all that really matters in a financial plan is the the real return. So again, like that's the return of the stock market minus inflation. And, you know, I mean, to me, like what's just what's just super important is if you look at like global historical returns for like 150 years for 16 countries and all this stuff, I understand there's like correlation effects or all that. But like like returns globally have have overwhelmingly been lower when the markets have had lower bond yields. And so to me like that's just it. It's just that you know it, when when yields are lower you need to assume a lower return when yields are higher returns have been higher. And that, that and it jives with I think what we would expect. Um it, there's obviously a lot of noise there. The market's had done really relatively well um up until 2022 and they're rebounding this year. I think that the, the key is just just to ensure that you're assumptions reflect reality. And I worry that too often advisors kind of press the easy button and just use historical averages. And don't think about the context of why that may or may not make sense.
1: To that point, a lot of these financial planning softwares have both default values, which maybe a lot of people don't dig into, or their ability to customize these assumptions is so limited that you're basically stuck with one assumption forever. You can't like pick a point and say, all right, 10 years, that's going to pivot towards your terminal long-term average I mean I feel like people are either getting er- like really rosy pictures if it were a couple of years ago or unnecessarily grim pictures of their financial plan and uh, it's probably a disservice to both the client and the planner because these tools are made to be easy but also in simplicity you're losing a lot of reality
2: and the one thing that that like that breaks my heart is I've I've you know, I've, I've talked to a few advisors of the day and like they'll have clients sometimes and they'll say, I, I can't work with you because if I do, I can't retire. But this other advisor, when I when they give me their financial plan, I can retire. And like it's like I'm like, you know, and they I'm like, whoa, like that is you know Because so one, one advisor is using like absurdly optimistic assumptions. The other is, is being a realist, you know, and and, and you know, like somehow the, the client thinks that the other advisor that uses crazy assumptions, it, it's somehow better plan. And, you know, I don't, I, I it's like it, that hurts my mind because it like, doesn't make any sense, but I guess it does for some people, right?
0: Well, that that's the guy with all the great investing ideas. So that's, <laughs> we, we all just need to go to them because what they're going to do is deliver those higher returns.
1: Whenever I'm talking with someone who's been pitched insurance plans, in particular, like a variable life policy, they're always illustrating 10 or 12% equity returns over the long run, which, you know, when you're competing against that, you know the realist is going to lose out because you're you're saying well 10 or 12% would be great year after year but that's not necessarily what we're going to be looking at so assumptions matter well yeah i mean especially you
2: know like i think that like the decade you know like like the 10 calendar years before 2022 was like a positive 14% return on the market and so you know if you're running a, an insurance illustration using the previous 10 years it's going to look spectacular Right. But that's not realistic. Like I would never assume that as part of a, even a near term financial plan. But based upon rules, whatever else, that kind of stuff might seem OK.
0: So uh, shifting gears just a little bit, because you teach uh, some financial planning coursework and and, uh, and I think at the CFP programs and and, and likely some others. you Are you at Texas Tech as well?
2: So I, I actually currently I'm only an adjunct professor at the American
0: College of Financial Services. Got it. OK. All right. Sorry about that. Sure. Um can you tell us about the shift that you've seen just in terms of, of the academic rigor in the financial planning industry? because I feel like we were really born out of brokers, right? Like it 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 was kind of this culture of salespeople that has evolved to be much more um, thought focused and and as somebody and I don't use this word lightly, but but somebody that is a thought leader in the space, I'm just curious kind of how you see that shift and and um, and just the landscape today versus what it used to be.
2: So I've I've been in the financial advising air quotes around that uh, term for about about two decades. Okay, and so when I first got started, you know, people would throw along the word stockbroker. So you're a stockbroker, and I would always kind of like cringe. Like I I am not gonna like sell you a stock. That's not what I do. Um, and I think that 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 the, the 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 industry has evolved. It's it's still evolving. There's still people that that do. They are stockbrokers. That's what they do. I think that collectively. We're moving towards more of a knowledge based profession where, you know, yes, it's important to build efficient portfolios, but the portfolio is just one part of a much larger, much more complex series of decisions. Like I think that right now there's like there's six or seven courses in the CFP program. One of them is on investments. Like, yes, you want to have a good portfolio, but I think that, you know, what what the goal is is to help someone accomplish their financial goals that requires a lot more than just picking a few stocks that may or may not outperform a benchmark.
0: Well, yeah, and, and I mean, financial goals are life goals, right? I mean, that's that's really what we're in the business of—is like, hey, tell me how you want to spend your time, and let's figure out if we can make that happen for you. It's not necessarily like I, I don't know anybody whose goal is just to die with the most money, right? That that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to create a lifestyle. So, um, I, I very much agree with that as well. So, in the in the research space, what's got your eye right now? Is there anything that you're seeing behavior wise amongst clients, whether that's like internally at you know, PGM or or um, out in the world that has you scratching your head in terms of the behavior. I know you did some uh, some work on people like selling out of their portfolios and reducing equity exposure in 2020, which you know the hindsight has now told us is a uh, was a poor choice. But um, anything behavior wise that you're really looking at right now that we can learn from.
2: So the one thing that. That was some research. that was like it's, it's called like "Stay the Course" Participant um, participant decision making in twenty twenty. I forget what the title was. Um, but the one thing that I've seen using different data sets over different periods and all this stuff is that you know retirees are an awfully behavioral bunch, and I'm using that term politely right now. I don't want to use the other word. Um, but you know, you'd think that that if you've been an investor for so this is an, a, a financial economist. You know, when you're defining sophistication you know, who is a sophisticated investor, okay? Well, someone that has experience doing it for three or four decades, okay? They should be better at investing than someone that is that is younger or newer to the game, okay? But, but in everything I've looked at, different markets, different kind of experiments, whatever, Older investors by far react the most to market volatility. And you know, and, and that has not been, been good for them almost across the board. And even those that kind of maybe tend to time it early and, and they miss the bottom, they miss the entire swing back up. There's 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 two points you have to get right when you time the market, the the exit and, and the re-entry point. And to me, what what is just fascinating is how do you how do you create strategies that are acceptable. For older investors that they're going to stay invested in, because they are the ones that, you know, all the evidence that I've seen suggests are the most likely to kind of react to things happening when they can kind of least afford to do so. And I mean, no one wants to like lose money, but if you're 25 years old, you have a lot of time to change course and learn from your errors. If you're 63 years old and you and you, you know, realize a permanent loss of negative 20%, you're not going to make that back right your window to kind of fix that is 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 declined and so i think that you know understanding how to create strategies and plans and solutions that help people kind of weather the storms is is just incredibly valuable
0: i mean i think you're you're alluding to to the problem even in how you're talking about the problem right it's it's the time and i think that that's what freaks people out is feeling like they don't have the time to make that recovery and they have to stop the bleeding in in some case and they make that emotional decision uh, and then the other you know, is that even if you've gone through a twenty percent decline before or a forty percent decline before, if it was fourteen years ago and it was two thousand and eight and you had a lot less wealth at the time, that decline in percentage terms was probably a lot fewer dollars than than it is today. and uh, and so when you watch those you know ripping losses <laughs> coming through your portfolio, I think it's I think it's tough. Uh, and just the exercise of gut checking people on, do you know what 25% of your portfolio is in dollars? If we erase that from your statement, is that something you can live with? And um, you know, for, for me, I think that's a constant part of the process of, of kind of poking people and, and making sure that they understand what the actual risk is, not just glossing over it in percentage terms. Mm-hmm.
1: Even if you're an experienced investor who's been through these before, because odds are if you're a retiree, you've felt the pain of a market drop previously you're playing a different game at this point because it's not accumulation anymore. And maybe you're navigating that for the first time is I'm relying on this portfolio to pull money out. And now all of a sudden, a lot of that money is not there anymore. I can't go through this again. You're more prone to making different choices than you may have made when you were younger and you could still add dollars into the market, which is always, always makes me feel better at least.
2: Well, I mean, so it's like, you know, it's like the perfect storm. It's like when you're younger, what matters is just saving for retirement. Like, yes, at some point when your portfolio is really big, returns matter, but it, it isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, like returns, there's this fun thing we use called sequence risk, right? It's just so important just before and in retirement where, I mean, it's it's one thing to experience a bad return, it's another to like experience it, lock it in, and then, you know, do nothing else about it. So I think that, I just think that it's really important to, to your point, understand the risk you're taking, but also like what is your strategy? Like how will you stay the course and all that? Because I think too many of the investors left to their own devices. They think they can handle it, but especially when they get older, they just can't. And like that, that's the behavioral angle that, you know, I wrote research on this kind of called Gamma, Vanguard has advisors, Alpha, there's lots of fun Greek symbols to talk about it, but advisors can add tons of value. And I'm convinced like most of that value is, is around retirement when, when investors will freak out more and will do things more that can really jeopardize the ability of that portfolio to last, say, 20 or 30 or 40 years.
0: So I, I tried to look up this stat before uh, we hopped on today and I couldn't find it, but I think there's something like only three years in modern history that stocks and bonds have both performed as poorly as they have, kind of in this first eight months of of 2022. Um, you know, in, into August I think was was the number. Um, if you're retiring today, that's a very disconcerting thing because it means there's been very few places, if nowhere, to hide. Um, which we did an episode titled that uh, for people that are accumulators. In many respects, seeing equity valuations come down and, and bonds kind of get more attractive to buy uh, is a good thing. Um, so, so for an accumulator, I actually think this presents an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, is is that your view as well? Just that that this is actually a healthy correction in the market, and that long term we're we're still in very good shape. Or, or are you seeing anything more structurally that people should be concerned about?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's obvious like pros and cons. Like, so I, you know, I refinanced my mortgage less than 2%. I'm actually earning 2% now on my checking account. So like, ah, that was so, that's so much better than where we were Found it. You know? But uh, yeah, I, just, I mean, like I, I'm making money just to hold on the cash. I love it. But like, there's been some pain along the way, right? I mean, you know, to your point, I I have a, this chart that I update. You know, I'm sure that a lot of listeners won't follow this, but there's this thing called stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation (SBBI). I do stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, and inflation. And you know, for the year, you've got stocks down, bonds down, Bitcoin is way down, and inflation is up. Like that is a an absolutely terrifying time to be in the market. And I'm not convinced that we we would we couldn't experience another 30% drop in stocks. I'm just I just think. That there's, it's, it's potentially in the cards, and I think that the key is, is, is you know, you, you know, you we've rallied a little bit. You know, stocks are I think they're only down about ten percent for the year. This is a really important time to ask yourself, how do I feel about, about my portfolio right now? Like, I get it, like six months ago when you when you couldn't earn anything on bonds, but now you can earn three or four percent on bonds right now. So like, you know, h- how do you feel about your situation? If the market goes down, you know, starts going down twenty percent, are you going to bail? right? If you are, you would have been much better off right now, you know, looking at other safe options that can give you a decent return that you just couldn't get a few months ago. So I think the, the one thing we, we have right now is is it's been somewhat of a respite, right? The, the market has come back up a little bit and asking yourself, Hey, wh- how am I going to react if things go down again and maybe reposition the portfolio accordingly?
0: I think that's a that's a wonderful bow that we can put on our conversation because I think that's really good advice to, to continue to be mindful and look forward. So, uh, on that note, David, we're really appreciative that, that you joined us today. We're going to put a link to your website. Uh, David's got an incredible amount of published work. So for anybody that wants to read some of his stuff, it's it's fantastic. And uh, we, we can't thank you enough. True
2: sure thing.